I need to begin with two relevant confessions. Number one, when I was 16 years old, I turned my back on musical theater forever. <laughs> After years of devotion and thousands of memory cells, irreversibly donated to Les Mis, I declared it's over. <laughs> Confession number two, I'm highly suspicious of anything that is a phenomenon. So imagine my surprise when I find myself at the Richard Rogers Theater on Tuesday waiting for Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> my name is Alexander Hamilton. I was totally unprepared. I think I was one of the last people living under a rock who doesn't know any of the soundtrack by heart, who hadn't watched the making of and who owns no paraphernalia. And as I'm watching, I, I can't help but notice that the character of Hamilton so deeply resembles another really vain, resourceful, well-dressed fellow with a musical written about him. <laughs> go, 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 Joes, if you know what they say. <laughs> Wait, does everyone, everyone knows that? Yeah. So I also couldn't help but notice that the heartbroken jealous, defeated character with the best songs, Aaron Burr, deeply resembles those defeated, not exactly villainous brothers in the Joseph narrative, who incidentally also have the best songs in the musical version. <laughs> now this week's Parsha begins by telling us that Joseph's brothers hate him. They hate his guts, and not without reason. This young Joseph has absolutely no filter. He talks smack about his brothers to his dad. He innocently recounts dreams about the whole family bowing down to him. And he does all of this while parading around in a silken cloak given to him by his doting father. And so too, Hamilton leaps onto the stage talking nonstop, writing up a storm, thinking he's God's gift to women and politics. He's impulsive and impetuous, and at least in the version written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is God's gift to straight women, he is oblivious to social... He's oblivious to... So okay. He's oblivious to social cues. So Aaron Burr and his brothers, their anger was completely justified. Who wouldn't be triggered by such arrogance? But then the anger boils and bubbles till it o'erruns the stew, and they reach a point where hatred literally blinds them. The laconic Torah text notes that the brothers, quote, see Joseph from afar, and before he can come any closer, they plot how they're going to kill him. This leaves us with a distinct sense that they actually can't see Joseph. They never could only from a blurry distance. And at the very same time, they can't see anything but Joseph. He is the reason for their failure. He is the everything that is wrong in their lives, in the world. He's that finger blocking their view of the sun. And it feels almost inevitable. Like there's no way other than for them to hate him. And a midrash in Tanhuma bears this out. It imagines that God needed each point in this narrative to unfold, that, 
that God, when God speaks to Abraham in the covenant of the pieces, Brith Ben Habitarim says to Abraham, years from now, your descendants will be strangers in a strange land. And so God made it that Jacob should love Joseph, that his brothers would hate him and sell him to the Ishmaelites, and they would bring him down to Egypt. You see, it was completely inevitable. And so, too, there's an aspect of self-fulfilling prophecy. We learn in the Babylonian Talmud in Tractate Brachot that all dreams follow the mouth of the interpreter, as in dreams don't have meaning in and of themselves, but only when somebody tells you what your dream means, that's what the dream's going to mean, no matter what they say. So when Joseph approaches his brothers, dreaming of sheaves, saying, my sheaf is standing up and all the brother's sheaves are laying down, Joseph doesn't interpret the dream. They do. The brothers do. Joseph doesn't assert that one day all of them will bow down to him. The brothers do. They interpret every move of Joseph's through their own impotent rage. And then there's, there's Aaron Burr. <laughs> his anger gnaws at his insides. Hamilton and Burr, they start out as brothers, as friends with Burr as kind of the, the older, wiser mentor. But now every move of Hamilton's destroys Aaron Burr. Burr abjures responsibility for his own actions. The void where his values and ideals should be is completely filled up by a Hamilton-shaped rage, and he is undone. In one of the most electric scenes, the rapping Greek chorus demands, what do you want, Burr? What do you want, Burr? And then the music cuts out. And suddenly Burr stands there alone, naked. And this voice emerges, and it sounds almost like the voice of a broken child. And he says, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. Want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. And then the orchestra returns, he wails out in desperation and this impotent rage, the same words over and over, I need to be in the room where it happens. And at the core of his des desperation is the conviction that Hamilton is the one and only thing in coming between him and that room, the room of decision-making, of making compromise, of power. He's locked out and Hamilton holds the key. It's not his own missteps, his failings, or lack of ideals for which he will fight, but it's that bloody Hamilton. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I have walked in Aaron Burr's shoes. I have walked in Joseph's brother's shoes. I've slid across that border where justified anger curdles into toxic fixation devolves into an excuse not to move forward in the world. And like the Midrash, it can sometimes feel almost inevitable. What's stopping me? What's getting in my way? Oh, you know what? It's my sister. <laughs> it's that friend who just didn't show up. It's, it's that scrappy colleague getting ahead. It's that misogynist president-elect. Whoever I have cast in this role as the cause of all my failure, I'm so myopic, 
I can no longer see his or her humanity. And at the same time, he or she is the only thing I can see, the finger that's blocking my view of the sun. I'm stewing. I'm, I'm harnessing the incredible power of negative thinking, and I, the only person harmed is myself. So after it's too late, when Hamilton lies dead and Joseph is presumed dead, Burr and the brothers finally can see clearly. Beyond the rage, they can see their oppressor's humanity. Neither Joseph nor Hamilton was the primary negative force they perceived, but it's too late. As Joseph's brothers stand in the home of the Egyptian viceroy who unbeknownst to them, is actually Joseph. They moan, alas, we're guilty for our brother. We saw his mortal distress. We saw when he pleaded with us, and we did not listen. Here, Joseph is no longer that demon. He's a distressed little brother pleading for his life. And Burr, as he traipses home from the duel, he sings, the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. The world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. There's so much anger all around right now. I've met with members of our community and colleagues who speak of an anger in themselves they don't even recognize. It feels like the darkest winter in recent memory. And this isn't the constructive, righteous anger that spurs us to action. It's that same impotent, powerless rage of Burr and of Joseph's brothers. My father, uh, who is my chavruta, is also a psychiatrist. And he taught me that this rage, when it breaks out of the impotence, when it leaves the powerlessness, it's capable of killing, like Burr, like the brothers. And if that same powerless rage festers like a sore pent up, it leads to paralyzing depression. These are not great options. The only way to treat impotent, impotent rage, he says, is by detoxifying, is by separating the two, by taking out the powerlessness from the rage and addressing it. The treatment or the healing involves re-empowering a person, getting to them to, yes, I can, restoring a sense of agency. And only then is she able to face the world and its challenges with strength and confidence. So from there, I want to get to Hanukkah. <laughs> Hanukkah, the holiday of rededication, of reigniting light in the darkness. The 19th century Hasidic master, the Sfat Emet, teaches that ner, that the word candle, stands for nefesh ruach, for soul spirit. He says that each of us holds inside a transcendent candle, a flame. But without oxygen, without inspiration, in the cold of winter, it gets buried so deep we forget, and we can't feel the indomitability of that flame. According to the Sfat Emet, the light of the Hanukkah candles searches out our inner flame and rekindles it. And we all need this rekindling so desperately. 
With powerless anger, we lose connection with the strength and goodness of our soul. When we feel powerless or victimized, all is dark. We need to reconnect to that light, that agency in our nefesh ruach, in our soul, to that yes, I can, to the yes, we can. We need to escalate the holiness, ma'alin bakodesh, not the powerless anger. The world was wide enough for Hamilton and Burr, for the brothers and Joseph. So as we emerge from the darkest days of winter, I want to bless each of us with Hanukkah candles strong enough to light us from the inside, with soul illumination and hardiness that stays with righteous anger and doesn't slip into powerlessness. And on occasion, because we probably will slip there, when we fall into it, that we have the strength to detoxify, to re-empower, and to shine our lights.